You're listening to 88.5 NEPM NPR News and Local Perspective for Western Mass. The Rundown with Carrie Saldo is funded in part by Armbrook Village. Good Friday morning. This is The Rundown. I'm Carrie Saldo. Joining me here inside NEPM Studios in Springfield this week to toss about the details of the biggest news stories of Western Mass, Steve Fox, Senior Lecturer in Journalism at UMass Amherst, Jill Kaufman, an NEPM reporter, and Matt Sisfranski, the founder and editor of Western Mass Politics and Insight. Good morning to all of you guys. So Good glad morning. to have Good you morning. here. Good morning. Let's run it down, shall we? Uh, East-West Rail, or should I say West-East Rail, <laughs> is the new branding coming out of Governor Maura Healy's office. And this week, the news related to that was that uh, Maura Healy, Governor Maura Healy tapped Andy Kojal as the first director of West-East Rail. Healy is really leaning into that language. And here's what Kojal told NEPM's Carrie Healy about the West-East name. Honestly, I, 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 don't, I don't think that the, uh, the name itself is going to be important. It's going to be how people use it and what kind of service they're offered to the people. Jill, we're wordsmithy, we're, we are all uh, wordsmithy folks gathered around <laughs> these microphones, if I could spit that out. Uh, this, this branding, is this branding or is it a demonstration of support that people and the, the Healy administration are quite serious about this I, project? I have to say, Carrie, I wish you were in the newsroom when like this story first started evolving because we were all like, what? West East, it's East West, and yet, and yet, and yet, if you want to, if if Healy would like uh, Western Mass to pay attention to what she's doing, this catches your ear, right? So it is. I imagine it is branding. I imagine the best uh, move that she has made uh, as governor and uh, overseeing this is appointing Kojal, who, you know, who has experience in public in transportation, in passenger rail, who knows this region because he uh, was out here for school. He's been also in other areas of the state, like Cape Cod, also remote. So. Um, so it may be marketing, it may be uh, a PR, but um, it'll be interesting to see if uh, if this happens, because as you all know, this has been a very long uh, co- time conversation and pr- proposals have been coming out over the years. And so far, um, we've seen a lot, a lot of incremental moves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Matt, I saw that you said on X that Angie Kojal is about to become Western Mass's <laughs> most famous state bureaucrat, <laughs> being named after uh, being named the West East rail director. Man, that is just still a mouthful. It's, not, East yeah. West. it's <laughs> easier yeah. to say. But uh, your thoughts on this movement? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, you can take it either as an individual act or as, you know, one of a number that have happened over the last year that have been consider- considerably significant. Uh, you know, appointing a person, you know, they had the funding in the budget last year for it is not in and of itself anything dramatic. But when you consider the fact that there's now somebody who's going to be trying to bring together all these disparate moving parts, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, you have to think of this project in two ways. There's the startup, which is the $108 million Chrissy grant that was received last year. And there is a larger, more ambitious uh, idea behind, you know, additional service beyond that, you know, more trains, trains to Albany, plus that compass rail 
uh, project that's now the branding within MassDOT, which technically West East Rail is within. And, uh, you know, while my understanding is is that uh, Andy Kojal will be focusing primarily on West East Rail, it still all feeds directly into that that, that compass rail where we'd have service going north, south, and west from Springfield as well. I think I think that to build on that that um, I'm not in PR I'm a reporter but if you want to catch my attention to understand that this is a piecemeal um, project that you're not going to suddenly have a train track that goes from Springfield to Boston it, Albany is involved um, going down to New Haven as part of the Springfield line now so some kind of ongoing uh, messaging from uh, the Healy administration or Kojal explaining what this is about so people don't have this expectation that this is a sudden you know magic pill that makes a train. I I think the number that they've been talking about for the trip from our region to Boston is two hours. So certainly you could get there faster by car if if (laughs) you don't get stuck in traffic. Right. So to your point, Jill, there are going to be stops along the way. And I think there's going to still need to be a lot of communication around this issue. Kojal is a graduate from UMass Amherst, Steve. Uh, He also has a master's of city and regional planning from Rutgers University. But does this local tie... Uh, make a difference here for this project? And you're not beholden to say yes just because you work for UMass. Uh, yes. Um, uh, I, I'm i a Western Mass transplant, but I understand kind of how the um, Western Mass folks sometimes think that they're displaced, that they're forgotten uh, part, part of the state. So I think that this, uh, this is a really positive step in the right direction. Um, I agree with you as far as kind of the, the drive can can be a hassle. Having this... And I, and I think I I understand that there are a lot of parts to this, but the the the, the big selling point for for folks out here is the ability to get into Boston without having to drive. Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, and that's a huge thing. I would almost eat that extra time yeah. if because you can be productive in that time, right? Or maybe read a book or what anything any way you like to to spend your leisure time. But it's been interesting too because I I wonder if this is more the the west east not to hit the language too hard pivot from Healy but it's kind of another layer where she found a way to fold in that money for the Pittsfield projects and the Palmer projects that the legislature opted not to. Um, just another, perhaps, layer of support here. Well, I mean, I think that you know th- th- this is, in, in and of itself, you know, making a big deal about having the existence of this this office, this position. Um, I don't remember exactly, but there may even be like a couple of like people that could work under him in the budget. Um, but... Uh, and by making such a big deal of it, I mean, it is kind of a PR move in and of itself. Um, <clears throat> but it, it also is uh, it, it's just a reminder that this is something that she I mean, it's a campaign promise. And, and I mean, and I think that, you know, I, I don't th- I don't know that you would say she had a, you know, 2023 was bad for Maura Healy, but it was difficult at times. And I think that they certainly uh, enjoy being able to come out here and feel like they actually are saying, yes, we, we talked about this. We promised this. And despite the fact that there was a pivot at the end of the Baker administration that made a lot of this possible, it's a very different tonal shift about this project. Uh, and I think that's uh, something else that they want to make clear. I just want to throw one more thing. And Steve, uh, I, I don't know. I came out of Boston, came here, and the loudest conversation I heard from Western Mass was, Boston's not paying attention to us. And I want to say that Deval Patrick did a huge, a mm. huge uh, bit of messaging by having a house former in Richmond. Former governor. Yeah. Former yep. governor um, next to Stockbridge, West Stockbridge. And his coming out west every you know weekend, it seemed, uh, and Jane Swift as well being out west, that made a big difference from the in, in the conversation. Jane Swift, former lieutenant governor. It made a big difference, but it's still a rallying cry, please, Boston. 
Boston, pay attention to what's happening here. I th- I think that there's more of it, but you know that, that that Boston is a capital city. That is the way it works in states. Hmm, absolutely. Well, you know, East West Rail will remain to be seen. Where East West? W- see, look at you. it's just it's it's gonna happen. Here we go. <laughs> well, whether or not. The train service is chugging along. We'll keep an eye on. But uh, it's a holding pattern for state control over the Holyoke Public Schools. And what we saw that is that we're nine years into state control of a state-appointed person running the district of the Holyoke Public Schools. And there's not a roadmap yet for when this journey might lead back into local hands. Jill, you've covered this issue for NEPM. Remind us first how Holyoke Public Schools ended up under state control, what we call as receivership. Sure, and there's and Holyoke is one of three districts um, under state control, and it is part of Massachusetts education law that allows for states to take over to close uh, uh, an achievement gap that's measured by standardized tests that are called known as the MCAS. Um, and this uh, largely, these takeovers have happened in largely lower income districts or districts in cities with lower income. I vaguely recall Charlestown as being uh, the early, um, an, an early uh, receivership district, I mean, in the early 90s. Um, and I think what's happening now is that what Governor, excuse me, what Mayor uh, Garcia is saying in Holyoke is that receivership uh, is not working. We may not have improved scores. We There may be a chronic absenteeism. But these are also issues that are taking place in other districts, um, lower MCAS scores since the pandemic, uh, chronic absenteeism, not only statewide, but nationwide. So um, there's there's a lot that is also moving forward. Um, I don't want to I don't want to occupy this whole thing, but I've been covering it for a while, but I'm going to I'm going to let you let you run some uh, questions. Also. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what we saw last Friday was the Education Commissioner, Jeff Riley. Uh, he came out and said he wants to make plans for returning the district to local control, but we're not quite there yet. And Holyoke, for its part, absolutely not loving this, Jill, as you alluded to. And we do have some tape from when uh, Vice Chair of the School Committee, Aaron Brunell, spoke to the fabulous 413 this week. And our main focus now is just trying to get in touch with them to help establish a timeline to continue the conversation. You know, if we're not there yet, if we're not ready, then what do you want us to do to show we are ready? You know, what do you want them to do to show that they're ready? Matt, at this point, should the state at least have information for Holyoke so it has a sense of what specifically it needs to be doing to allow local folks to come back and be calling the shots here? Well, I certainly think so. And I think it speaks to, you know, kind of an ambiguity in the way that the law itself is, is implemented because this should be something that's kind of upfront, like at the beginning of uh, receivership as opposed to something that becomes a bottomless pit, so to speak. Um, this is a problem that I mean, a lot of lower income communities, I mean, Holyoke, is, Holyoke trades places with Springfield as the poorest community by uh, um, certain, certain measures uh, in the entire state. It has probably one of the highest uh, uh, levels of state aid for uh, the school system. I mean, if, in effect, I mean, this, the city probably pays, you know, maybe 10 cents on the dollar for its education dollars. So you can certainly say that the state has a right to, to know what's going on, but they should also have, you know, much clearer from the beginning. And then certainly when we're, what we, I think, generally think is closer to the end than the beginning, a, a clear sense of what is going to happen, what needs to happen, um, or, you know, some, some the state needs to actually come up with a public plan of its own about what it's going to change before it will entertain uh, uh, 
returning local control. Mm. And Jill, you, you spoke to this a few moments ago, but we did hear Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia arguing that the school should return to local control because receivership from their point of view hasn't worked any better than local control did. You know, and from the files of the proof is in the pudding in this scenario, that proof being the state standardized tests that we look to, those MCAS, which are meant to measure student achievement, the scores are still well below state averages there. So where do we come out on this issue then if the state receivership of the city is not helping us and the local control is not helping us? How do we how do we get to an answer? Well, let's throw the school committee in here because there's a school committee that is whose hands are tied. Basically, Um, the receiver, who is also the superintendent, Anthony um, Soto, uh, who is from Holyoke, um, is is making those financial decisions can actually upend a teacher contract. I mean, that's a a overstatement in that way. But but has the the keys to um, the financial um, to the bank. Basically, the school committee has been um, as all school committees in Massachusetts have been uh, training to work together as a as a school committee. They go to work. And Mildred Lefebvre um, has told us, uh, who is now head of the Massachusetts or president of the Massachusetts uh, School Committee Association, has told us uh, in stories uh, we've uh, interviewed her about what it means to get ready to make those decisions, those budget decisions or staffing decisions. And so there has been movement. And finally, if if, uh, if Jeff Riley at the Department of Education of DESE says, um, no, we're not releasing the district from receivership, the district can appeal to the Board of Education, which is where Governor Healy comes in. Mm, yeah. There are some larger educational issues here at play, which you mentioned as far as standardized testing and COVID. And um, you know, these are, you know, you talk to any parent or educator and they will groan about teaching to the test. And yeah. the issues involved in, in, in standardized testing with bias. Um, so I, I do think that those larger issues need to be looked at as well. When you're when you're looking at how um, communities are performing, we need to really take a hard look at the impact of COVID on on teaching and on students. Yeah, absolutely. And so now, while we still don't have a clear plan for the city of Holyoke right now when it comes to education, the city does have a clear plan for something we learned about this week. And NEPM's Karen Brown did some reporting on this, that city and business leaders in Holyoke have announced ambitious plans for developing a new $100 million multi-sports complex that could help revitalize the city. Um, It'll be overseen by private developer Cesar Ruiz. Uh, That's phase one of this, about 140,000 thousand square foot indoor facility for volleyball and basketball courts and the new home to the volleyball home of fame where you know it made its it's made its city home in Holyoke there uh Steve you've covered sports for for a long time on and off during your career can volleyball be enough to justify a hundred million dollar investment volleyball is huge uh the University of Nebraska filled the stadium in Nebraska uh Earlier um, in their season, I think it was the game was in August. Ninety-four thousand people. Ninety, I think it was ninety-four thousand people attended a outdoor volleyball game. It is huge. Uh, I have a good friend who teaches at the University of Wisconsin. She's been talking about the popularity of volleyball for year for years. I mean, for some for some reason, it has caught on in the Midwest. The Big Ten schools um, are drawing it, uh, and and I think that there's a huge opportunity here. Hmm. Cesar Ruiz told NEPM that phase one of this proposed project is just the beginning. Let's hear what he said. We decided to approach this thing as an Olympic-style venue, multiple sites throughout this community, utilizing present assets and new assets. An Olympic-style venue there, Matt. You've been in this community a long time. What do you think when you hear that? Um, 
you know, it sounds great, but I mean, you know, I, I often refer to, I mean, for, you know, I'm from Springfield originally, so I'm a little more familiar with that, but I think it's a city of white elephants. And I, I worry, you know, uh, for my friends in Holyoke that they don't get that, you know, make, make some, a similar mistake. Uh, you know, for... The question I think is really going to, if a private investors want to spend their money on something like that, that's their prerogative. You know, it's a, it's a free country. The talk of the pu- public part, especially if it's coming from the city of Holyoke itself, and we were just talking about schools. I mean, they have had quite a bit of difficulty getting the proper financing to get, uh, you know, uh, Massachusetts School Building Authority matches. Uh, for, there, there was an incredibly uh, difficult process of getting overrides for uh, bonding for, for schools a few years ago. So, and, that, and a lot of that did relate to the lack of credulity from some of the, the people that uh, lend money to municipalities. So I'm concerned that they might, where they're going to get the kind of money they would need to give that pu- uh, pu- uh, public match, maybe the state might kick it in a little bit. Maybe they'll get some federal grants, but I think it's going to be tough. Yeah, and I think something else interesting or tough about this situation is they did not adhere to the first real estate mantra, which is location, 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 <laughs> right? We do not know where this uh, ambitious venue would be located. Jill, were you surprised to see the city you know, you know, choose to make this announcement prior to having a site? So I, I look at Holyoke uh, in this case through the lens of economic development, right? This is all about bringing people to the city, but I'm also watching um, the developments of the Victory Theater under MIFA and how the Victory Theater, which doesn't have uh, this kind of private backing as large, I mean, it has some private investment grants, ARPA money, um, that is so long in the, in the making and will take another, I don't know, in my lifetime, I don't know, a decade, but that is supposed to create a cultural district from uh, where, where it's located down to Race Street and uh, Gateway City Arts now not, you know, in, in, in question of whether somebody else will buy it, but there's, you know, there's an art scene down there. There's art scene all over Main Street now. Um, so, so location, location, location. Um, there are other things that the city is trying to build out that will bring people here. Uh, will it be exclusionary in some way? Like, will if the restaurants are so good, will it stop people from leaving that location? You know, and going out to those many wonderful restaurants in Holyoke, for instance. Uh, I also want to bring in here that the Springfield Republican Jeanette DeForge did a piece also about the fact that Springfield was looking at a multi-sports venue as well. They used the same consulting company that Holyoke did to get to uh, their assessment. Springfield ultimately found, according to DeForge's reporting, that it's going to be too costly, that, that they couldn't carry the debt, right? But also that they're, they don't have the, the land. They need about 10 acres to do this. So we're talking about a 15-minute drive between Holyoke and Springfield. Can we uh, come to some sort of resolution across to city lines and, and meet in the middle? Well, I, I mean, I suppose one would hope so. I mean, intermunicipal cooperation is is, is something of a white whale in, in Massachusetts. Uh, one thing I, w- I would note also is, you know, to, to, to Jill's point about planning is how what's the transportation situation going to be like? We were just talking about East-West Rail. Well, there still is, you know, the Valley Flyer, uh, and that does connect Springfield and Holyoke, but where would, could it possibly be in a place where that would be rem- remotely convenient? Um, you're going to have all these people, you know, trying to, if, if, if it's successful, crowding into streets that were designed in the late 19th century. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, if, if that's also going to be a, a, a factor. We're going to have to take a quick break here, but stay with us. The panel will be back for uh, intriguing developments about the Latino Super PAC in Springfield and the struggle to keep up with your mail-in ballots. You're listening to The Rundown on 88.5 NEPM.
Welcome back to The Rundown here on AVM. I am Carrie Saldo. We are taking a look at the biggest Western Mass news stories of the week with Steve Fox, Jill Kaufman, and Matt Sisfransky. A piece out of the Berkshire Eagle, Jane Kaufman reported this week, city and town clerks struggle to keep up with the demand for mail-in ballots. This year, with a minimum of four elections, some city and town clerks are turning their attention to processing vote-by-mail applications and little else all year long. Steve, uh, you mentioned during the break that this is <laughs> this is giving you some flashbacks. Yeah, I think anybody who uh, who has covered any, anything from the from the 2000 election up until the the past couple election cycles is seeing the possibility of disaster here when it comes to the um, to the presidential uh, election cycle. Um, so I, I I would hope that folks would be able to figure it out and and be able to devote the the amount of time and effort to to get it right um, yeah. at this level because uh, I think there are ramifications down the line. Are, are considerably more, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, this was a permanent change to allow mail-in voting here in Massachusetts that happened under former Governor Charlie Baker back in 2022. And now, Matt, are we seeing the unintended consequences, what was meant to help people keep people safe during COVID? Well, I mean, it, it, it to a certain extent, I think these were exactly the consequences that a lot of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say opponents, but co- uh, concerned observers of uh, th- th- this law were uh, talking about. I mean, already in some communities, Holyoke, for example, it's been not unheard of that the uh, elections office or in the, or the city clerk's office, depending on uh, you know w- w- which area, which election's coming up, basically don't do anything in the week before election except the election because they just don't have enough staff to keep the, the clerk's office or the other functions of the election office running because um, they don't have enough people. And this is a and I think this really should be thought of in a broader context of the difficulties that municipalities are having staffing. Um, you know, we were talking about, you know, guys were talking about snow last week uh, and the difficulty that, that this is the same problem, just in a different form. And this is not just a COVID problem. COVID, I think, made it much more acute. But I know people that are like or town managers, administrators who are talking about this as a problem, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. If you're not in a wealthy community, they can just throw the money on the table and say, well, you work for me, um, that they're they're not getting people to work in these jobs and you're suddenly giving them a big responsibility like processing a bulk number of mail-in ballots, it's going to have a crunch. Yeah, and that's definitely part of what Jane reported on. All these smaller cities and towns that we have across western Massachusetts might have a part-time town clerk. Mm-hmm. And this is a heavily volunteer effort, Jill. Uh, think about Shootsbury, which is uh, for, uh, still Hampshire County, um, has um, still has a crank uh, ballot box. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, and the clerk Old there. Style is, wooden. Yeah, it's she's one a wonderful clerk there. And staffing issues in a small town might be uh, m- might appear to a city like, oh, do you have you know you have enough people because your population is lower, but it's very challenging. So when we look at national elections versus local elections, uh, there are, Massachusetts. Um, um, mayor, you know, may have sway in this national election, but it's those local elections around, um, you know, funding. If you don't have a town meeting and you have ballot boxes, that's going to be uh, an issue or, or, you know, and ha- how that's going to work. Yeah. I do, And I do think that there's not a great appeal to being a volunteer election worker after what we've seen has happened to election workers and the attacks that they've ha- had, um, you know, the last cycle and what ha- what's happening on social media. There's There's very little 
incentive for people to go and volunteer and be an election worker. In the past, it may have been patriotic or other reasons, but um, yeah, who wants to sign up? To, yeah. And I think it, it was in Shutesbury where they brought, they're also getting these massive like FOIA requests uh, about election stuff. Generally, uh, I, I think uh, it, their 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 clerk was featured in the Globe or something about that about this very problem. So like at the at a peak mo- at a moment of minimum uh, staffing and at a moment of maximum work, then you've got all of this, you know, national political hysteria that's making even more work for them. And this is only a small amount of the list, literal list of responsibilities that cities and town clerks have, whether it's keeping vital records, um, serving as the chief elections officer, as we're talking about, right? Um, but there are all types of duties that cities and town clerks are responsible for outside of elections that are now probably, presumably, taking uh, a pretty hard back seat. Where do you see cities and towns going with this, Jill? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't have an answer. And I I think I think that it it could be something that um, a state government looks at uh, to support. I mean, local funding is a certain you know there's a certain amount of money that's going to come based again on population, I believe, and it or it could, could be, be a plea of saying like, please vote in person. Getting that message out, Carrie. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, there's a question of democracy here, um, you know, and and that will be called out as well. Giving people access really matters. And uh, you know, we're we're in the Northeast. That's another conversation when you're in the Southeast or other parts of the country. But uh, it, it's unclear what's going to happen, and it could be something that the state has to pay attention to. Yeah. I mean, I love voting in person. I, I brought my kids. You know, got you get a sticker. Into it, you know, so I think that there there could be significantly a pretty good marketing campaign around that. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch that, though, because there was such a push, vote by mail, vote by mail, vote by mail, and now uh, the backlog of work that that's provided. This is a great piece from the Eagle at this time, because now I think uh, there's a light shown on the the seeming ease with which you fill out a little card, and boom, your ballot shows up at your house, but there is a lot going on behind the scenes. I, I just want to get back to the question you asked, which is, ask the question about who is running for school committee, who is running for volunteer positions, let alone paid positions in a town, whether a town has money to pay enough staff. Uh, and yeah, this, it, these are these are hard jobs. You are in public, and social media has changed everything about how people respond to uh, municipal government. Mm. Matt, you had a piece on Western Mass Politics and Insight uh, that is about Hispanic leaders now, Hispanic Latino leaders now, a super PAC. Tell us about uh, that piece and why you decided to take a look at it. Well, I was curious uh, when I learned when they had to file, what the date was for their annual report to be filed, what what were we going to learn in their annual report that we didn't learn in their uh, seven-day, 24-hour report? So basically, very briefly, under state law as a super PAC, they have to file a disclosure within a certain amount of time of spending money if it's for or against a candidate who is a state filer. So, for example, the the largest uh, person that they had supported was uh, Orlando Ramos when he was running for mayor here in Springfield. Uh, Most of that money was generally disclosed uh, Right within that time period, they had some paperwork issues, but it wasn't anything, you know, that OCPF had a problem. That's the Office of Campaign and Political Finance. Um, so, uh, but I thought there has to be other things they were spending their money on. There has to be money they were get, maybe they were getting money from somewhere else. Turns out they weren't getting money from somewhere else, <laughs> and they have reported a 32. It's probably closer to actually a $29,000 deficit because there's some double counting in their paperwork. But uh, I also found that they were spending in, spend a considerable amount of money in Holyoke, 
um, or they spent in a lot of races. It wasn't a huge sum of money. They spent a lot of races in Holyoke. They spent also in Lemonster, uh, supporting a uh, somebody who was running for office there, who is also an aide to. Uh, this wasn't in my story, but it was an aide to uh, Congressman McGovern. Um, and also spent on one other mayoral candidate in Waltham. Uh, there was a challenger to the incumbent mayor there. Yeah. And just one, one quote from your story. The rise of the super PAC in Springfield has raised concerns about a shift in city politics. Ruiz is hardly the only well-heeled, that's referring to Cesar Ruiz, uh, only well-heeled individual in the Valley. More money could alter city elections and not necessarily for the better. Uh, you're thinking there it's too, too much money in politics? Well, I mean, yes, but I mean, the the the, the the, one of the problems with a lot of the debate about like super PACs and Citizens United and so forth is that it's it, they just kind of like people say, well, it's too much money and, and it's like directly corrupt. It changes the incentive structure of how politicians behave, I'd say, more than it like definitely causes outcomes to change. Um, and, you know, in Cesar Ruiz and the Hispanic Latino leaders now, they did kind of say their focus was electing more Latinos. And that does seem to generally be true. But somebody who doesn't have any, you know, uh, ideological or not ideological but some particular mission like that somebody who truly is just supporting their own business interests and there are a number of people like that might you know start spending and make uh counselors or mayoral candidates whoever else start think about how they're doing things differently than they are now well super PAC's not an issue going away anytime soon uh i'm gonna move to my favorite part of the show here we're gonna talk about predictions and scoops we're gonna ask you to open up those reporters notebooks or uh give us your thoughts on on what's happening we'll go briefly and we'll start with steve scoops or predictions for you looking at the news. So two quick predictions. Uh, the uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to beat the 49ers in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I can only give you one today, <laughs> so that's yours, right? Wait, wait, this is the better part. Uh, Travis Kelsey would get down on one knee uh, after the game <laughs> and propose to Taylor Swift. Jill I, I was thinking that at halftime, that's after four innings, right? Um, that Usher <laughs> will share the stage with Beyonce and Taylor Swift, and we'll see how that all goes. And uh, just to uh, pull back the curtain a little bit, I'll be looking more and more into that vote-buying stuff that happened in Springfield, uh, both, both on the— both on both sides of that particular issue. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Really appreciate all the work from the panel today. Jill Kaufman, Steve Fox, and Matt Sisfranski. Thanks so much. Stay here. You're listening to The Rundown on 88.5 NEPM. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Rundown on 88.5 NEPM. I'm Carrie Saldo. Our look at Black History Month in Western Mass continues today, and our focus is on abolitionist David Ruggles, who once lived in Northampton. Kim Gerald is a docent and board member at the David Ruggles Center for History and Education. Kim Gerald, welcome to The Rundown. Thanks so much for being here. We're excited to learn a bit about the David Ruggles Center in Northampton. So I just want to start for some context for people who may not know, and a reminder for folks who do, um, the Ruggles Center, the David Ruggles Center, was founded back in 2008 in Northampton, and it was a museum. Um, the idea was a museum and an education center that would, according to your website, honor and interpret the lives of the abolitionists who founded Florence. So give us a sense of what Florence was like in the 1840s when David Ruggles and other abolitionists called it home. So Florence was a very small outpost of Northampton. 
at that time, maybe around 600 people living there. It was a, there were a few factories. It was kind of rural. And um, at the time that this, there was a group of people that mostly moved there from other places like Connecticut to start a utopian community, an egalitarian community. That was happening around New England and other places in the mid-1800s. And they wanted to change the world and they believed in equality for blacks and whites, men and women, all religions, all classes. So this was a small community of people that bought an old abandoned silk factory and said, we're gonna make silk. We're gonna have a school for our children. We're gonna live here in the factory. Most of the people lived in the upper floors of the factory. And uh, people in Northampton, which was the big city, um, looked at these folks with some concern because this was pretty radical stuff. It would concern still be pretty radical. Because well, there because were people of color gathering people, there or because of what it, they were doing? Because they were abolitionists who believed in ending slavery right away. People, many people said they were abolitionists, but they really didn't believe in ending slavery right away. And their um, idea, many people believed that yes, they should end slavery and the blacks should be sent back to Africa. That was called the colonizationist movement. And these people were like, no, we're into ending slavery immediately. There should be reparations and there should be equality between blacks and whites. So they just thought that was pretty odd. And a lot of these people had also left their congregational churches because of their differences in politics. So people thought that they were, you know, not appropriately religious these people were religious but they had left their churches they just weren't fitting the uh, particular mold that these folks yeah. had in mind and so then yeah. ruggles comes i mean and he's a man who assisted hundreds of people escaping slavery yes. he mentored future abolitionists you know frederick Douglass and sojourner truth among others yes. well what's a what's a lesser known but important piece of history that you like that stands out to you about ruggles Ruggles was, he was born in Connecticut. He went to New York City as a teenager. He opened a grocery store. He turned it into an abolitionist bookstore. And he organized this committee of vigilance to help Blacks in New York City in his 20s. He was not only a, he was a writer, a speaker, but he was a rabble rouser and he was involved in direct action. So I just am amazed by what he did before he even came to Northampton. Um, mm. It's pretty astonishing. And he was not in good shape by the time he got to Northampton in his early 30s. He was in um, ill health, right? And that was part of the reason was, he came, right? Exactly. People in New York, Lydia Mariah Child, who was somebody who had been here in Northampton, said, you need to take care of yourself so you can continue doing the work. Go up to Florence check out this community. And of course, he went and they embraced him and he lived there for the rest of his life, which unfortunately was only Short. seven more years. Yeah. yeah, he died when he was 39, right? Yeah. And he reinvented himself during that time. He was still an abolitionist, but he became a practitioner of hydropathy, cold water 
therapy. Very a, yeah, very quickly, what is hydropathy? The water well, cure, right? It was called? It seems like it's coming back, but it was plunge yourself into cold water many times a day, wrap yourself with cold sheets. And there were different facilities around here, and it will cure all kinds of illnesses. And of course, it was a place where you would come and stay. You'd be with other like-minded people. You would eat relatively healthy food. So who knows what helped people feel better, but many people swore by it. Well, and, and Frederick Douglass clearly yeah. loved it as well because he wrote about his time with Ruggles in Florence. And um, he said, quote, here at least, neither my color nor my condition was counted against me. And then he went on to say of Ruggles, quote, he was a man of sterling sense and worth. So what do yeah. you think it was about Ruggles that caught Douglass's attention? Well, Ruggles was one of the first people that Douglas met when he was escaping slavery. He got to New York City and Ruggles took him in from the docks and took him to his apartment. He helped his his fiance Anna Murray come. They got married in Ruggles' apartment and Ruggles was in the middle of a big struggle in New York City, a legal case around helping a a, a formerly enslaved person become free and so Douglas is like probably like 19 and he's watching this guy in action so Douglas is getting mentored the minute he gets to you know New York City so I think he was shocked that this was a possibility this is something that he could do because he was gonna they were gonna go to Canada and Ruggles was like don't leave you know, he sent them to New Bedford. You know, you you can be involved, and in fact, that's what Frederick Douglass ended up doing. So I think he just felt like Ruggles was his mentor. He was his friend, um, and he owed a lot to him. He really admired him. Um, so you know, he came to Northampton, like 1844, I think, was one of his first visits to Northampton to see to speak, but also to see his, as he called it, his friend and mentor. David Ruggles. Yeah. You're listening to The Rundown. I'm Carrie Saldo, and this is 88.5 NEPM. I'm discussing the life and legacy of abolitionist David Ruggles with Kim Gerald of the David Ruggles Center for History and Education. You are among the volunteers that work and speak about the mission of the center, but also Ruggles' life and um, making sure that history lives on and through to today. But also part of the mission, as I understand it, is teaching, which, you know, you yeah. have a background in that as well. Yeah. Yes. And I noticed some of the curriculum that's on the website, and it's freely available to to any teachers who want to use it. And yes. one curriculum is titled, We're Here to Honor Liberty and Denounce Slavery, which I think is a Frederick Douglass quote. Is that maybe? Actually, no. This is um, That was a quote by Stephen Rush. He was an, an African-American member of this community, the Northampton Association, hmm. and he had escaped slavery from Maryland. And um, that was a speech that he gave. Mm. Um, okay. So he was a member of the center. But yeah, yeah, we... we... See, look, learning together here. I love it. Yes. And, and so we're here to honor liberty and denounce slavery. What does that curriculum entail? So that curriculum was written by one of our members, Tom Goldscheider, and it's focused for middle and high school students. You could adapt it for lower grades, but it's a beautiful curriculum that allows students to work with primary source documents and learn about all these characters that were part of the association. And so they 
examine the documents and each little group of students becomes an expert in one of the people. And then they come on a tour. And instead of the tour guide telling and doing all the talking, the students share what they learned about each of those characters, often in front of the house that they lived in, like Sojourner Truth or David Ruggles or in front of where the association was located. So the students get to practice history like real historians do and then teach. What a great so way for them to also retain that information. Curriculum. You mentioned the association a minute ago. Were you talking about the Northampton Association of Education and Industry? Yes, that was the name of this community. Tell us a bit about the yes. the industry, the education and industries work and its relationship yes. to Ruggles. So this organization existed four and a half years, 1842 to 1846. And it had about any given time, 100 to 120 people living there and working there. And everybody did everything. People that were, they were raising mulberry trees, children were processing the silk and feeding the silkworms, they were making thread, trying to sell it, but they had other things going on too. They had a, a farm and they had a cutlery division and a machine division. So they were trying to make a living and also be free to do, to engage in the political work that they were interested in. So they would have speakers and they would you know, have events, and so they were supporting abolition very actively. Many, most members were fairly active abolitionists. Um, so that was the community that Ruggles joined, that Sojourner Truth joined a year after Ruggles came. Um, it was, it was a, an interesting group of people. People came and went. It wasn't for everybody. It was kind of Spartan living and it was cooperative. It was a democracy. It wasn't one of these communities where there was a, you know, charismatic leader or a religious leader. Um, people voted together. And you, as you can imagine, that got, that got messy and contentious at times. And that's what makes it fun also, right? Yeah. And interesting. <laughs> uh, this, this is life in action. Exactly. For you, you're, you're now a retired educator. You could be spending your time in lots of different ways. What is it about the David Ruggles Center that attracts you and makes you want to volunteer and, and work with the group? I've always loved all, all history, but this is a history that grabs me in so many ways. And I feel like it's an unknown history, even for people who've grown up in Florence. They're like, wow, I never knew that. And it's a history of people really trying to do something different and really try to do something radical and egalitarian. And I think it in, it's very inspiring. Um, the issues are still with us. The legacy of slavery is still with us. Racism is alive and well. So I think learning from these people um, gives us inspiration for the work that we need to continue doing today. So. Um, and I want children to be exposed to this, young people. I want all ages to be exposed to it, but I'm particularly interested in in young people knowing this was in here in Western Mass. And how do you think Ruggles' work from you know so many years ago informs the present day work that needs to happen? I mean, for me, Ruggles and many other people in the community showed that you, it's not going to end. We can't stop. We can't give up. He never gave up. He kept doing the work under very difficult 
conditions. Um, and knowing that, I mean, he didn't know, he never saw the end of slavery. He died in 1849, but he never, ever stopped. And so I think that that's one of the legacies of David Ruggles and that also you can't do it alone. You have to work with other people. And so that's another one of the legacies of this whole community and of, of David Ruggles. Well, people who want to learn more can check out the David Ruggles Center website. It is a very robust research, yes. resource with um, historical information, but also the curriculum we've referenced and, and tons, tons more videos and uh, lots of different information. Kim Gerald, thanks so much for joining us on The Rundown today. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Carrie. That does it for The Rundown this week. Next week on our show, our look at Black history and Western Mass pivots to the Berkshires and the W.E.B. Du Bois Center for Freedom and Democracy in Great Barrington. And of course, we will run down the biggest news stories of the week from Western Mass. Speaking of the news, if you have a question or comment about what's up in our region, leave us a voicemail at 413-225-4922 or email us, the rundown at nepm.org. The Rundown theme is courtesy of The Love Crumbs. Our director is Tony Dunn. Our board op is Phil Bishop. Production support from Betsy Langto. And our engineers are Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Chuck Dubay. I'm Carrie Saldo. Thanks for listening to The Rundown this second week of February 2024. Stay here. Up next on 88.5 NEPM, Marketplace Tech.